Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Dudley Maurice. I warned you last week that it might be the last Monday Madness in a while. I guess I was right because this isn't coming to you till Tuesday. But you get one more shot of Doug and I coming out of the NFL draft and talking about some of the potentially pending seismic changes that are coming to NCAA sports. Uh, but we're starting off with uh, an OSU topic, as always. And we're coming out of the NFL draft, we're actually recording this pretty early in the in the draft weekend to get ahead of things. But obviously, we start off with Thursday night, Ohio State receiver at number 10, Ohio State receiver at number 11, former Ohio State receiver at number 12. And it got me to thinking, when I came here in 2019, Ohio State had a reputation either as being DBU or edge rusher U. And have we now completely shifted over to this being uh, contending for either wide receiver U or QBU? And it's certainly, I think you would make the case right now, there aren't, I don't know what other, I haven't researched, like what other programs deserve to be called wide receiver U, but a combination of what some guys like Michael Thomas and Terry McLaurin are doing in the NFL and what we're now seeing in the draft and what we're seeing as far as Ohio State uh, producing talent, it's definitely trending in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like, oh, yeah, no, this is this is the Ohio State receiver room, right? This is what you do. But, like, this is not what it has been. It They had not had a first-round pick in a long time. This is the – this really is the beginning, and yes – Michael Thomas and Terry McLaurin are shining examples of guys who have become great NFL players, but McLaurin was a third round pick. Thomas was a second round pick this idea. And it is funny, Nathan, and this is how sports works, right? You're an expert on your team. So everybody listening, nobody listening to this is like, Oh, Ohio state has good receivers, but you go through like the national college people and NFL people. And when those, when the three guys won in a row, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, and then Jamison Williams as a former Buckeye. I mean, that's like everybody was saying, oh, my gosh, what a recruiting tool for Ohio State. Holy moly, they were in the same room. And we live it every day. But for people who don't, they know those guys are good. 
But the draft, one of the reasons that people love the draft so much is because it is the ultimate crossover, right? There's college fan bases and there's NFL fan bases and tons of people love both. But there are also some people who really only lean in on one or the other. And this is the day where you bring everybody together. And sometimes you sort of introduce NFL people to uh, what you think is a known quantity. This is a reality in college football. What are you being surprised about? But that was part of that was real when the NFL when the receivers went like that. So I do think this is a new era and I do think it will feed on itself. And I do think if I do think this has a chance, I would say receiver before quarterback, but I do think in five years, if you're saying Ohio state is what you, I think it might be receiver, right? I, I think it definitely is trending in that direction. I thought it would be fun to kind of go position by position and say, is this trending towards being that positional you for Ohio State? Is it trending away from that? Or is it just kind of holding steady? Because I think that's happening in a couple of cut a couple of positions too. But wide receiver is the one where all three things are really potentially syncing up. If Michael Thomas, Michael Thomas very recently was the best wide receiver in the NFL. Like he was, I think, widely considered the best wide receiver in the NFL. So you've already got that going for you. Like you produced the guy. And then on top of that, you had the production that was happening at the college level and then leading to what we saw last night, especially Alave and, and Wilson being those those two picks back to back at 10 and 11. You still have Jackson Smith and Jigba hanging out. That's the other part of the, the narrative from last night was everybody was like, hey, those three guys just went back to back to back. Wait, do you see you? this guy they they left behind, like the one who's coming next year. And then on top of that, being a room that just consistently every year, Brian Hartline kind of gets to go get who he wants. And sometimes it's the number one guy in the country. And sometimes it's a guy who's like number 12 or 15 or even less than that when Ohio State first gets a commitment from him. But he happens to keep climbing and climbing, and climbing like Jackson Smith and Jigba. It's there's it's come. The forces are coming from just a lot of angles as far as this being a wide receiver identity school. But I think it's also very much tied into what Ryan Day is doing in the quarterback room. And we've talked about this before, but how those two forces kind of play off of each other. The wide receivers want to come play with the best quarterbacks in order to keep getting the best quarterbacks. You have to be able to point across the hall and say, look at who we're going to have here for you to throw to. So this was though the first first round pick at receiver for Ohio state since Ted Ginn jr. In 2007, which, which feels crazy. They had two receivers also that year, the first round Ted Ginn jr. And Anthony Gonzalez. And that had followed on Santonio San Holmes being a first round pick the year before. So that's pretty similar to this. And, and I covered those guys. Most people listening to this are very aware of that little era of Ohio state receiverdom, but then that didn't keep going. So that's the thing here, Nathan, that this is right. This does feel like the beginning of something because it's not just, you happen to recruit some talented guys right on top of each other. It's a, it's a way of doing business. It's the way the offense runs. It's how Ryan day wants to play. It's how Brian Hartline wants to run a receiver room. And so the the difference here is being like, hey, we have good guys and we have guys who get drafted and being the place that pumps out first rounders time after time. And we all see that. And the other thing that happened here is, well, who would have been the other place to challenge this? Well, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, but even they did not, as much as they were cranking out quarterbacks and they had a great passing game, 
you know, CD lamb was a great receiver. They had some, it was a first rounder. They had some other guys come through there, but they weren't putting two NFL receivers out there every year. And now Lincoln Riley's somewhere else. So maybe USC develops into this and it's Ohio state versus USC for wide receiver you, but I don't, I'm not even necessarily sure like who the other challengers would be right now. Certainly LSU had a run there for a while, but now it's, is that what Brian Kelly's going to do? I don't, I don't know. And Bama, right? Bama had that run for a while, but Bama is now currently taking every transfer receiver they can get because they haven't been developing wide receivers. And then the difference there is it's the position coach. There is continuity here. And someday Brian Hartline won't be the Ohio state receivers coach. And just like someday Larry Johnson won't be the Ohio state defensive line coach. It will be interesting to see, how much of it in the end is the position coach within the structure of the program or how much can the program keep it going? Because I think when you look at some of those other places, Hey, maybe why won't they keep it going as consistently is because, well, they don't have the same kind of continuity at the position coach level that Ohio state has had. And we think will continue to have with Brian Hartline until he decides he wants to be a head coach. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point to make because it you also saw it a little bit at in the secondary too. Like you know, you had the continuity of Kerry Combs for several years at a crucial time when they were producing some you know high level defensive backs, and that's what kind of led to that identity as well. So I thought let's go position by position. We've already we both say wide receiver U. Clearly, they're trending up towards that. Trending in the direction of wide receiver you. I think we would both say also trending in the direction of quarterback you. You've had um, Heisman finalist Dwayne Haskins, Heisman finalist Justin Fields, Heisman finalist CJ Stroud, continuing to land high level guys year after year. Um, maybe until you actually win a Heisman or something. I don't know if, 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 but I don't know that there are there programs out there. Oklahoma would maybe be the only one that I can think of that has so consistently produced guys who you think are just like automatically going to New York and automatically going to be first round guys. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I, I guess Alabama, they have the current quarterback Heisman winner and Tua was a finalist and Mac Jones was a finalist. So their last three starting quarterbacks and Jalen hurts had a good run there and then left and then was a finalist somewhere else. So that's better. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Oklahoma, there's been some weird sharing in here, the way Ohio State and Alabama get to share Jameson Williams, and there's been some quarterback sharing. But I think you're right. Alabama should be in that. So what about the positions where, again, like I said, just a couple years ago, you would have said Ohio State. I even wrote a piece about DBU and Mm. is Ohio State. Can Ohio State claim being called DBU? And this was coming out of the 2020 draft. So or I think it may have been or even going into it. I don't know if, if Akuda and Arnett and those guys have been drafted yet, but it was at that moment. And that's a point where you have two first round picks, Jeff Akuda, third overall, Damon Arnett at uh, 19 or 20. You then had a, even another guy down in the sixth round, Jordan Fuller. But it seemed like a there was more coming at that point. Not maybe to the extent that there is with this receiver room, and the momentum that you're seeing in quarterback for Ohio State, but still, like, you felt like things hadn't crested. It felt like a moment where things were still trending up. And then with what's happened since then, Damon Arne- uh, 
yeah, Damon Arnett's not in football right now for off the field situations. And he wasn't playing that well when he did play. Jeff Okuda, a lot of injuries in the NFL so far has not gotten his feet set. Then Jordan Fuller turned out to be the best NFL player of that draft group as far as DBs for Ohio State so far. You follow that up with Sean Wade being only a fifth-round pick and him not really getting things started yet. You follow that up with the way that the secondary has been playing for Ohio State. I mean, it was a problem in both of the last two years in different ways. I think Ohio State has definitely trended away from that identity. They still have guys in the NFL who've been producing, but those guys are getting older by the year. And as those guys graduate out, I don't know that this crop is has the people to replace them. I feel like this coming Ohio State season is it's something I've been meaning to write. Like if, if they want that DBU identity, this 2022 secondary maybe needs to be the one that gets it back. Yeah, and we're going to find out again, talking about when is stuff uh, tied to a position coach and when is it not? We feels like this might be tied to a position coach because this kind of fell off when Kerry Combs left for the NFL initially, and then he came back and now he's gone again. So I, I don't, I don't know. Is there some, now listen, Ohio state had some great DBs before also, right? Malcolm Jenkins and Sean Springs and Antoine Winfield. And right. We, we know that. So it's not like they, Kerry Combs didn't invent defensive back play at Ohio state, but that runs Kerry Combs, man. Now Bradley started with Bradley Roby. Bradley Roby was recruited during the Trestle era, but he played for Kerry Combs and Kerry Combs helped him get there. And then the rest of that run is Kerry Combs. So I don't know. And it does like, when you think about like the big 10 and, and that Ohio state, why should Ohio state be DBU? It's not a passing league. They don't get tested as much. It's not like, the Midwest is necessarily a recruiting hotbed for defensive backs, right? Like why would, why should Ohio state be DBU? So I, I don't know how long to hold on to that, but I just did quick math of the 15 drafts since the last receiver was taken in the first round for Ohio state, not counting this year since Ted Ginn jr. In 2007, Ohio State had 22 first-round picks in those next 15 years. Nine of them were defensive backs. So that's almost practically half the first-rounders were defensive backs. Now, that's thrown in some safeties like Malik Cooker in with all the corners, but it's mostly corners. Five defensive ends, and then two each at running back, linebacker, offensive line, and quarterback. So, I mean, if we look at that, Nathan, there's no – it's like, well, what are they? It's DBU, man. It's not anything else. It's nine first round picks in 15 years. I just don't know if they'll retain that. Yeah, it was April 15th, 2020, when I wrote this piece. So going into that draft and I I had based it, I kind of tried to do a scientific analysis (laughs) and I, I had based it on college credentials, the draft, star power and NFL production. Mm. And then also, but then the fifth category was looking ahead. And you know, which school had the advantage in all those categories? And overall, I came to LSU being the one who most deserved to be called DBU for, you know, they had had, they, they really won the college credentials one. They really were also kind of winning star power. You had, you know, um, multiple like all pro guys, you know, um, Tyra Matthew, those sort of guys. 
Ohio State, though, won out on the draft, as you just mentioned. And then the crucial one that had them like right on the cusp was looking ahead because we knew that Jeff Okuda was going to be a high draft pick. We thought, um, and, and Damon Arnett, we assumed would, was going to be a fairly high draft pick. We didn't expect him to go quite as high as he did. We thought then, though, that Sean Wade is coming. We thought some other things were coming. Now, while that has not happened, Denzel Ward just signed the most lucrative cornerback contract in NFL history. Marshawn Lattimore is walking around with a pretty fat wallet. So there's still very relevant defensive backs from Ohio State, like still performing in, in, in the NFL right now. Some of those guys were on the tail end of that run that you were talking about that, that has a pretty long tail that extends back. And and there may be some of those guys also, there's some guys cycling out who aren't maybe in the prime of their careers anymore. So if you had to characterize it, would you say the DBU status for Ohio State, is it trending down? Would you argue that it's still sort of like holding from where it has been that they don't deserve that uh, title, but they haven't really fallen off from contending for it. If you know what I mean? No. And I think when you factor in the guys who are getting it done now, that Denzel Ward contract got everybody's attention. Marshawn Lattimore's contract got everybody's attention. Um, Those are the two guys leading the way right now, but they're still young in their careers. And if they hold on, hold on, if they continue to be excellent, NFL players who are cashing big checks until Denzel Burke and Jordan Hancock and the next crop of guys get there, then, then you'll maintain it. Cause I do think you make a good point. A lot of it is, is top down. It's who's in the NFL that was from your place. And even if you had a little gap, if you're still getting big time attention, that's what it's about. So I do, they have a couple guys, you know, Garen Conley, not as much in the league, as you said, Damon Arnett. Jeff Okuda has had some injury issues. Jeff Okuda is in danger of being a bust. Like that is the third overall pick for a terrible team who has basically given the Lions nothing for two years. And again, it is very injury related, but that doesn't, you don't always just get a break on that. Like that Lions, the Lions are trying to do something here. And Jeff Okuda, they drafted him to be right in the middle of that. And when you think about, okay, well, who Joe Burrow was the number one pick in that draft. Chase Young was number two. Jeff Okuda was number three. You look at what Joe Burrow's done in two years. Chase has been pretty good. Maybe, I mean, like pretty good. He's good. And yeah, so that's, the injuries that's, really threw him off last year too. That's tough for Jeff. And I like Jeff a lot. I thought Jeff had everything. So I'm surprised. But again, you can't control the injuries. But it's going to be on Ward and Lattimore for a while to carry this. But I do. But then again, Jordan Hancock. Kalen Johnson, Denzel Burke. That's a lot of like mm-hmm. that, that that's a crop that came in while Kerry Combs was here then again. Yep. So that now it's on Tim Walton, Perry Eliano. And then as we know, there is geographic recruiting. There's guys who come across Brian Hartline was all over Denzel Burke. And it was like, this guy's a DB, right? So, I mean, this is, you have to have your other guys helping too, but we're really going to find out. And I know Walton and Eliano are out there getting after it, but they and I do think Nathan, it's important for them to stay attached to that because they're still selling DBU. They're enough DBU for Perry Eliano and Ter- Tim Walton to go sell that to guys still because they're gonna they can have the graphic about the hundred million dollar contract for Denzel Ward. But if you let it get away from you and then you can't sell it anymore, then you're then it's harder to get it back. Yeah, I I had originally thought that I would put a tr- a, a down on this. I think I would probably call it even, but say that. <sighs> 
because I because again when I did that analysis a couple of years ago, I wasn't calling them DBU. I thought they were below at least LSU, but you have to also say that they are trending away from being as as close to contending for that title as they were. I think this 2022 season, this group of DBs that they have right now needs to sort of kind of push that back in our direction. And, and Jeff Okuda can change that too, still, I assume, because a lot of it was sort of tied up in what he was going to do in the coming years. I think it's okay to use the word bust because I've, I've said this before, like a, a, a person isn't a commodity, but their athletic performance is a commodity. So Jeff Okuda as a person is not a bust, but Jeff Okuda as the number three pick in the draft might be a bust. Yeah. Uh, at, Edge rusher you, and I think it's I, I would call edge you instead of just D line you, right? Because it's really more about the the pass rushing guys. It's more about the defensive ends as far as like where Ohio State really could almost like could stake that claim that it was producing them better than anybody else in the country. Would you say even up or down at at edge rusher you? I would say not down yet for sure. I I think it's listen when you go. Bosa Bosa young and you go third pick, second pick, second pick, and you're only a couple drafts removed from that. That's still kind of trending up. They just, well, I'll have to see where Tyreek, well, we're recording this before the draft. Tyreek Smith's going to be a drafted guy. I guess I would say even right now. And again, can they hold on? until maybe they get a boost from Zach Harrison, JT Tumaloa, Jack Sawyer when it's their time to go in the draft. But I, I would say even. Yeah, I think you could say even because you could probably, I think, still argue that Ohio State should be number one. I mean, with those three guys in a row, what they did in college, what they, how they transitioned it to the NFL. I mean, Chase Young's only had two seasons. He was fantastic as a rookie and then got hurt last year. So maybe his 2022 season there's some it has to carry some weight in this argument. But speaking of contracts, like I think the Bosa's are both about to get massive contracts here in, in the coming years. I don't remember when their deals run out, but like when their free agency comes up, I think they're gonna it's gonna be very lucrative for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's gonna put Ohio State get some momentum going. And then as we said, like Ohio State is it's it's another season where the guys who are actually playing there in 2022 can change this conversation a little bit. If you get a breakthrough from JT Tuimaloa, if you get a breakthrough from Jack Sawyer, if if Zach Harrison elevates beyond this that that's sort of like good but not great level play, if he gets up towards great, then it it helps that that conversation. But it as you said before, it is really about any any program that's trying to claim this, they point to the NFL, whether that's DBU, QBU, this this position. And at the top of that right now in the NFL is still a, a lot of Ohio State guys. And, and Cam Hayward is putting together a potential Hall of Fame career right. as an Ohio State defensive end who's been in the league for well over a decade now. And he still has some juice. He's still acknowledged. And that, oh, yeah. that gets Ohio State's name out there, too. So it is that three-player run for the most part. When you look back in the last 15 years, the five defensive ends drafted in the first round of the two Boses, Chase Young, Cam Hayward, and then Vernon Golston, who was a bust uh, in the classic sense of the word, just was not a good NFL player, is one of the bigger busts in the last 15 years of the draft, frankly. Um, but Cam really helps, too. So that it's not only three guys, but nobody else, no other, no other team, right, could really come close to pointing to 
the Boses and Chase Young. Do is there somebody? I'm you know again I I didn't go back and and research and just off the top of my head though no like I I can't think of who else has produced that many guys at this same cluster. I bet if you were to go back over, somebody would say like, well, over 20 years, yeah. such and such team has had, you know, like Miami or somebody has had that many in that period. Um, you know, I think Florida, Florida state has produced some guys. I mean, everybody down South has produced those kinds of talents really. But um, no, I think Ohio state, you could still claim that they are number one. And so that's where the one where I think just saying that they've, they've stayed even is, is not a bad thing. There was one other position where I thought you could argue that Ohio State has maybe held even wherever it is on the list of competing for that positional title, and that's RBU. I think Hmm. there was a time when running back – when I was growing up, I thought running back was pretty synonymous with Ohio State. It seemed like there always were really great running backs here. And, you know – Zeke Elliott's the last NFL one that Ohio State has produced that has been like a consistent guy. But again, J.K. Dobbins got there, looked good, got hurt. Trey Sermon was a third round pick. So he turned basically like three games into Ohio State being in a third round pick. And overdrafted. 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 But was drafted in the third round. And because uh, part of this is what you do in college that that gets you drafted to a certain level too. I mean, the, all those things are factors in this. And and then you've got Trevian Henderson here who looks like he could be a solid addition to your argument as to whether or not they are RBU. So because Ezekiel, it looks like he's trailing off. I think I would say that they're only sort of holding even at RBU, but um, they are sort of holding their own at this position, I think. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, obviously, shorter shelf lives for lives for running backs. Be- Beanie Wells having his career cut short. That guy was a first round pick, and just with the leg injuries, we never got to see in the NFL really what he uh, could be. Carlos Hyde had a nice little career. Has hung around as a guy who still gets carries in the NFL. Like, hey, that guy was a very productive running back for Ohio state as they're starting running back for a couple of years. And I wasn't a thousand percent sure what he'd be in the NFL and the NFL. I think he's been better in the NFL than, than I anticipated. So then you always have to have a guy on top. So Zeke, man, Zeke's in the, you know, whatever the, uh, what's the pot he jumps in, he jumps in the pot and eats the soup. He jumps in the Salvation Army pot, jumps in the Salvation Army pot and comes out and says, give me some soup. Give me some soup. Feed me. So Zeke, I mean, like Zeke, give me some, uh, quesadilla explosion. Like I, I like the soup when you get the little uh, like tortilla strips on top of the soup. I'd uh, so I, that'd be doing that. I'd be eating the soup and then I'd be sprinkling. I'm doing that with my fingers. I'm sprinkling the tortilla strips on my soup. Zeke is a frontline guy, and all this stuff. If you want to, you have to have your frontline guys. Like oh, LSU as a case as wide receiver. You. It's like yeah, because Odell is out there tearing it up, and then as Odell was peeling, you know, sort of coming down a little bit here came Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase. And it's like, yes, that place. They didn't have to have eight first round picks in between Odell Beckham Jr. And Justin Jefferson, right? It was okay. But Odell had so much juice that he carried the load. Zeke peak Zeke had as almost as much oh, yeah. juice as anybody in the league. And he is spreading the gospel of Ohio state running backs. That is huge. Now, shorter shelf life. So who's next? But he's not, he's not gone. He's not going anywhere. 
so if JK can be healthy, and that's just terrible luck for JK to get hurt in the preseason last year for Baltimore when he was going to be their number one running back, assuming he's back as their number one guy. And then Travion's coming in a couple of years. You got a chance to keep that going. So you, you stay in that conversation, I think. So I think yeah. they're even, right? They're not falling off. Not yeah, and, I, and again, I don't think you necessarily have to be like one of the top five contenders because I mean, we're talking about anywhere you are on the spectrum. Just where is the momentum right now? And I, I would just, I would still argue that, that they're, they're hanging in there. The other thing you got to remember with running back is unlike DBU, unlike even wide receiver, you, you're not putting two, three guys into the league at once, or even in like maybe a two year span. It's, it's very much, it's, it's more sporadic. You're only producing like one star running back at a time. So you, you have to kind of adjust it the way you evaluate. Same, it, more similar to quarterbacks, really. Yeah. Um, so there's two other positions that I put on this list. And that was OLU and LBU, both of which I argue Ohio state is trending down from contending for those. Do you agree? Yes. They have not developed the offensive line guys. Even when you look like that, Wyatt Davis has not popped in Minnesota right away. Listen, Corey Lindsley, really good. Josh Myers looked ready. Good. Taylor Decker, a good solid starting offensive tackle as a first round pick. They don't regret that pick. He's not an all pro necessarily, but he's a good, solid guy. They did have some other guys kind of along the way. Listen, Andrew Norwell made a gazillion dollars as a guy who didn't get drafted and then got a huge free agent contract. So Andrew Norwell has been good, but they just haven't done it as much lately, which is why it'll be interesting a year from now after our pod predicting the 2023 NFL draft, if they have Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones both go very high, we might be oh, are they what could they be next? Are they trending up there? But maybe not because then those guys will go pro and then we'll be like, who are the tackles? And then we'll be, which is we've already done that. We're all we're already playing who are the tackles. So yes, I think they're trending down. And then linebacker, I just don't know how that's coming back because the two first round picks in the last 15 years are Ryan Chazier and Darren Lee. And it feels like they're constantly looking for the next Ryan Chazier and Darren Lee. And we're not exactly sure right now who those guys are. I suppose with linebacker, it's possible that the game is changing enough that there will be sort of a revisionist evaluation of something at some point. And now, you know, I mean, Pete Werner was a second round pick. If he like becomes a thing in the NFL, like that, you give them some credit for that. The offensive line thing, though, it's like what year was Taylor Decker? Like at some point, you have to 16. So you're that's a long time to me for Ohio State not to have produced a first round pick on the offensive line. Like now you're getting up. This will be the what fifth, fifth or sixth draft in a row now where they haven't produced 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, six. This will be sixth. Yeah. That's just that it, Ohio State should have more first round offensive line guys than that, I think. I know it's hard, but it's also kind of not hard. Like if you're Ohio State, you're, you're attracting the best offensive line talent in the country, and you've got two that are starting every year, and tackles are such a premium position that people like kill for. I don't know. I think you could sneak one in every six years. I know it's kind of hard. I also know it's kind of not hard. Buckeye talk. I, I will say one of the things that's weird is that. Like Taylor Decker was drafted in 2016 and then Thayer Munford just feels like he took up a tackle spot every season since then. And he was a pick, not a first round pick, but he was, he was a really good 
college football player and a very good Big Ten tackle. It it wasn't like, oh no, what a disaster that they, you know, it's just that Thayer's not a first rounder and he was a four-year start, a four-year starter. So um listen, the that's again, I feel like it's probably like the fifth thing that we said on a po- podcast is like, and that's why Greg Stadrawa is not the coach here anymore. That it's just, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, it, it wasn't bad. It's Ohio state. It's very hard for something, some specific area to be bad. Cause they just don't let that happen. They just, the, the people are too good. The talent is too good. The resources are too plentiful, but it wasn't as good as the other position groups around him. And when you look at receiver and defensive back and defensive end, and then you go to the offensive line and you say, Hey, it's five guys here. Hey, where's your, where's your first rounder? And it's like, eh. and then it's like, okay, well, maybe it's not bad, but can we be better? And I think the answer to that question was yes. And however long Justin Fry's here or the next guy's here, I think there's an expectation of like Ryan Day is going to be knocking on the door saying how many first rounders you got in your room right now, because that's the expectation and it should be. Yeah, and that is part of the equation. All those little things are part of the equation. That's why I think this is more than just an academic exercise. I don't think Ohio State has to be positional you at any one given position at any time. I think it needs to be in the conversation at multiple positions, though. Mm -hmm. That tells you whether or not Ohio State actually is still at the top of college football by whether or not it's still producing that talent up into the NFL. It's 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 a... cyclical thing or whatever you know it's a it's a circle but like you've got to keep feeding it like the guys have to be if the guys are getting in the nfl and succeeding and staying there that means you're producing talent and if you're still producing talent that means you'll eventually be getting more guys in the nfl like it's it all feeds off of each other and again i don't think ohio state has to be dbu and edge rusher you and qbu and wide receiver you but the fact that it is trying to it plausibly is contending for like all four of those things at once is why Ohio state is what it is. And you think about it where they are contending for it are at the premium positions, corner Mm -hmm. receiver, edge rusher, quarterback. And then the fifth one would be offensive tackle. So like that's, that makes it even more. It's like, are you sending a bunch of guards to the NFL? You send in defensive tackles to the NFL. You send in linebackers and safeties and tight ends and even running backs. Well, that's not quite as much the deal. The deal is who is part of the passing game and who is part of stopping the passing game. And that's where they're in business, which is not a coincidence. And it is a reason for their success. And it's a reflection of their success. But it, it also is a change. I do. Man, I want to make sure I finally find, found the things online that I was looking for for some, some stats on this because sports source analytics, which is a good uh, Twitter account to follow had done pr- before the draft had done some lists of things. And I, I actually have what I think feels like uh, maybe they missed something here, but I just want to throw this out there just to get some last numbers out there. The previous 10 drafts before the one that just happened, they said there were five teams in the country that had at least 10 overall receivers drafted in the previous 10 years, not first round, obviously, but overall, LSU 14, Clemson 12, Alabama, Notre Dame, and Oklahoma 10. But by my count, Ohio State also has 10 in that 10-year period. Previous to this draft, they just didn't have any first rounders. 
But if you go back those previous 10 years, uh, starting with, let's see, I've got, let me see the math. Wait, I have this. Oh, no, no. I, I search. I have to search by receiver. It's, it's guys like Devere Posey and Paris Campbell and Evan Spencer, Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Noah Brown, who's still in the league, Michael Thomas, Braxton Miller, Devin Smith, Devere Posey, right? I think those are the 10 guys. Like that's, those are real guys. They're just not first rounders. So I would say, I think they're tied for third before they just had two first rounders and a transfer first rounder that set the world on fire. So they were in that conversation as we were, as you were saying, they were in that conversation anyway at receiver. And that's how close they are. They're going to be uh, like, Hey, now if they all of a sudden start getting um, a bunch of first rounders, they can leap up and be the number one team there by DBs. According to them, there were 11 teams. This is previous to this draft, the 10 drafts before this last one, there were 11 teams that had at least 10 defensive backs picked. They have, LSU 18, Alabama 17, Ohio State 15. But again, that's where Ohio State's guys, Ohio State has nine of those 15, or not quite nine, but a bunch of those, like seven of those 15 are first rounders. Mm -hmm. So there's the quantity and then there's the quality. And that's why Ohio State clearly makes a case as DBU in the past decade, because they have as many total as anybody, but their dudes were super high. And there's enough of them getting it done in the league. So they're not that far off in the past of being wide receiver. You from a quantity standpoint and their quality, they've got two studs in the NFL right now and their quality of the draft picks. The number of first riders is going to increase. So they they're right there. They're going to, they're going to take that mantle. I think pretty convincingly in a year. Yeah. I think this is a, a conversation to maybe revisit every year after the draft and just see where things are trending. Because I think, a year from now, depending on what kind of first year Olave and Wilson can have, um, yes, it it, 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 this conversation could change again a little bit. We're going to come back from break. We're going to talk about some significant changes, one that has definitely happened in the NCA, and some others that could be on the cusp. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. Doug, NCA President Mark Emmert has stepped down. They call this a, a mutual parting of ways, even though I think Mark Emmert got a contract extension last year and, and makes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm a little skeptical that he's walking away. Um, you might want to dust his back for fingerprints, as uh, my buddy back in Lafayette, Mike Carmen, used to say. Um, but this is going to be a, a significant change at a time when the NCAA is undergoing significant change. Uh, Mark Emmert has been widely criticized for being terrible, just ineffective. Yes, just just uh, but uh, some combination of ineffective and not present and um, and uh, overall not being um, just uh, a, a the, the leader that was needed at a time when leadership was needed. A lot of sins of omission, not commission. Yes. It's not that he did the wrong thing. It's that he did nothing. Yes. At a time when the entire amateur landscape of sports in this nation is undergoing a seismic shift, and it has felt like the organization that's supposed to be in charge of it was watching instead of doing, and that lands squarely on his lap, which everybody listening to this knows. Yeah, I think if, uh, you know, we only build statues to like the great leaders 
But if there was some kind of a law that the NCAA had to build a statue for every outgoing president, I think his would just be like palms up, just like, well, <laughs> it would just be a statue in Indianapolis of him going like, eh. <laughs> I don't know. Is that my responsibility? <laughs> what? So I'm very curious where the NCAA goes with this, because I feel like, I mean, listen, the whole thing's blowing up and the NCAA has abdicated its influence in the most important reforms that have been happening to these sports in ever. (laughs) So um, the NCAA is sort of stuck right now between protecting its interests and really needing an agent of change. And I don't know where they turn for, for leadership there. As somebody, I was having an argument recently with uh, a friendly argument, much like what we have here on, on the Buckeye Talk, and about some of the things you and I talked about last week on Madness, which was the, well, the way that coaches, NCAA coaches, spent a lot of time clutching their pearls in recent years when they could have been more proactive coming up with a better solution than what we have right now to things like NIL and the transfer portal. And uh, as it pertained to NIL, um, a a friend of mine said, that's true, but don't forget that it was the presidents who were dying on the hill of amateurism even more than the coaches were. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably a fair point to make. And this is who, at the end of the day, does he, do the presidents have more influence here and who the NCAA president will be? Uh, I'm talking about university presidents, not separate from the NCAA presidents. And is it kind of like when we've talked about even with Kevin Warren in the Big Ten, it's like who, whose interests are you protecting and advancing? And how difficult then is it to be an agent of change when you still are kind of protecting the status quo or protecting the people who um, are the structure of the sports. Well, every, every commissioner in every sport serves at the behest of the owners in the sports. So it's like, Oh, Rob Manfred in major league baseball does what the, you know, favors the owners over the players. It's like, you think Roger Goodell, who's he, whose side's he on? They can get rid of him at any point. So the, the problem is that there's so many, schools and sports and universities under the umbrella of the NCAA and they don't all want the same thing. Right. So like somebody had made the point, like, so there's this transformation committee that I think we'll talk about a little bit that they have their Ross Dellinger from SI.com has done some really good reporting on this. And we're leaning on a lot of his reporting for this conversation that they're studying all these things that might change. And one of the co-chairs of that transformation committee is Greg Sankey, who's the commissioner of the SEC. And I know somebody similar was like, Oh, Greg Sankey, maybe he could be the president of the NCAA. And it's like, he has more power now. Right. That would be a step down from commissioner of the SEC to president of the NCAA. So if you're the president of the NCAA, who are you supposed to serve? The 50 richest schools that kind of want to be able to do what they want and not have limitations on how much money they can spend and how they spend it? Or everybody else who's like, if you open the floodgates, we're not going to be able to keep up. Then you're going to bankrupt us or leave us hopelessly behind. Who are you supposed to serve? Currently, all of them. So while Mark Emmert was terrible at it, he was terrible at maybe an impossible job. It's a really hard job. Maybe the point of this is 
you just can't have the NCAA be like this anymore. And you're going to have the top group and have their commissioner and you're going to have everybody else and have their commissioner. And maybe there's some things where the rules apply to both, but there'll be some things, really important things where the rules are very different. But I do think as I, I, even though it's a really hard job, you still could get somebody better than Mark Emmer. And we're not going to pretend that we're experts on this stuff. I read a story by Dennis Dodd at CBS Sports, who's very into this kind of thing, who he had his whole list of candidates for this kind of job. But I will just say, I was looking at Mark Emmert's resume. I don't, I don't believe he was a college athlete. They're actually, I actually have somebody, the type of person in my head, because I do think you have to have somebody who can, at this moment in time, while we're still like this, can bridge the gap a little bit between the gigantic athletic departments and huge schools with tons of resources and the everybody else group. And I actually can have I, a, a person in mind who I think would maybe fit some of those qualifications. Can I guess? Yes. Is it a person with Ohio State ties? It is. Is it Anthony Gonzalez? It is not. Oh, you just blew my mind. That's really good. He needs a job. <laughs> yes, that's, what, that's why he's, yeah, he wouldn't have to. It'd be one thing like, well, I'm not going to leave Congress to go be, but you're already leaving Congress. So that's really good because I know mine's much more obvious. I know that a lot of people have said the last Mark Emmert was the president of the University of Washington, but he's been the NCAA president since 2010. He's been the president forever. Um, Miles Brand before him, president in Indiana, right? Um, oh, so Cedric, Dempsey, Cedric Dempsey was the AD in Arizona back in the day before he was. So there's been a lot of people from the inside, right? And some people are saying, hey, let's get off the university president thing. Let's think outside the box. Condoleezza Rice, who's the, whenever there's a sports thing and it's like, huh, what yep. if we got a sports person who wasn't really a sports person? Everybody goes to Condoleezza Rice because she was in government and she likes football and she was on the football committee. I'm not saying she wouldn't be qualified, but we just can't think of anybody else. Anthony Gonzalez is along those lines. It's a politician who likes sports with a sports background. I really like Anthony Gonzalez, but I, think Christina M. Johnson would be a, a very reasonable candidate for this. She's a former college athlete. She's worked at universities like uh, Johns Hopkins, and she was at um, State University of New York, SUNY, before she came to Ohio State. She's now at Ohio State. Again, she got right into the weeds in the pandemic of let's play Big Ten football, and these are the needs of my gigantic university where football is really important. I can see it from that standpoint, but that's not the only world that I've lived in. She understands the athlete experience. I think she's, she certainly seems like a very smart, competent person from my very brief interactions with her. And she got down to business and served her university. And it's not the only thing, but we're talking about the sports part of it. Like somebody like that, a university president who actually understands athletes and could come at it from the big school perspective. Like, I got to serve. You got to serve the Ohio States of the world. But I also understand everybody who's not an Ohio State person. Listen, who knows? But I think we just came up with two pretty good candidates right there, Nathan. Well, when you started talking about the bridging the gap between big and small schools and uh, someone with a background as university president, I thought you might be 
about to pitch Jim Tressel. Oh, but that would be tough. Three. I think when you've had, I think it'd be tough when you've had that many uh, sanctions, <laughs> when you basically got run out of the, the job. And I also think get, get your texts ready. Uh, the, the two or three of you who hate it when we say stuff like this, I think demographically they should look more towards a Christina M. Johnson than a Jim Tressel at this yeah. point in, in history. I think finding another Mark Emmert is bad optics, but I, I don't think that's a good reason to just say, because I think sometimes Condoleezza Rice is like the one black woman who has yeah. been involved in college sports at that level, even just tangentially with the football committee. So that's why her name keeps coming up. And that's right. the sort of thing that has to start changing and, and, and elevating the Christine M. Johnson's of the world would sort of help do that. So if I would not be shocked, obviously, if this was a, a woman or a minority or both that they hire for this job. And they have had a female NCAA president in the past. They have had mm-hmm. a female president in the past. She was, a pre- uh, I think, Judith Sweet, I think was her name. She was a president for a short period of time. But I do think you have, I think you have to try to get somebody who understands big school and everybody not a big school. I don't even want to say small school because it's like gigantic, unlimited resources, athletic department, and then everybody else, which is actually moderately big school, medium school, kind of big, small school, small school time. It's, yeah. it's because it's so, because there's so few at the top. It's not even all 65 of the power five necessarily. It's like the top half of those 65, right. but they want to do what they want to do. And I think you have to find a way. I don't know if like a, an absolute cleaving of it's just two separate things. It's too like they have nothing to do with each other. I don't know if that's the best or if you can find a way to say, well, here are the rules that govern everybody in these 10 areas. And then when it comes to what resources you can use and how you can pay athletes and how you can, the number of coaches you can have and those kind of things, well, then those rules are different for this group. And you can select which group you want to be in or something. I don't, I don't know if just like, that's it. We're done. It's two separate things is the way to go. And if you're not going to do that, if you're going to try to keep them together some way, I think you have to have somebody who understands and has lived in the shoes of both sides of that a little bit. So then to me, it's like, all right, well, then you're pulling somebody who's currently at one of the 30 big schools, which is somebody or understands one of the 30 big schools, which an Ohio State person would qualify for that. So would somebody at Texas and USC in Alabama and Florida state and everybody else, but who's come up through other avenues where they've dealt with the realities of, of places that have less money. You're, you're touching on something and we don't have to go on this whole tangent, but I just want to make sure that we maybe stop and emphasize these things sometimes, because you're talking about like 30 big schools. I would say that those 30 big schools do not include, let's say Illinois or Purdue probably mm-hmm like don't fit in those top 30 schools right now. But if you're Illinois state or ball state, you look up at Purdue and Illinois and you're like, my God, like what that, what it would be like to have those resources and live on that level. And that just, I want people to keep that in mind as you kind of look at how that staggers down through college sports, that there are still these big gaps. And that doesn't mean teams don't compete well with each other through those gaps sometimes, but I mean, it's, it's, it's football revenue. It's, it's, it's football revenue. 
And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the other thing we want to talk about, the 21-person transformation committee that Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, is chairing. Uh, Ross Dellinger is, man, if you guys don't follow Ross Dellinger on Twitter and like regularly read what he reports, he's about as good as there is really on reporting the national stuff. And I don't just mean like. I will say I, I used stuff. to think he was not very good. I remember when I he got he's pretty he, good. he was off the LSU beat mm. and it was like uh, Joe Burr, like he got hired at SI.com after LSU won the national title. I was like, oh, so your school is national title and SI.com hires you. It's like he at the beginning was writing a bunch of LSU stuff. It's like, cool. Yep. You're just writing your beat for a national audience. But he has been all over like the transformation stuff yes. from this standpoint, better than everybody else. So he does deserve a lot of credit for the reporting and the explanatory nature of like what is happening in college sports right now. So I've come around on Ross Dellinger. He doesn't write like the sexy things. I mean, there's guys out there who are just texting coaches all day and they're doing the transactional stuff. And, you know, when the guys from the guy from Miami, who's now threatening to go in the basketball player from Miami, who's threatening to go in the portal. If he doesn't get a better NIL deal, did you see that last night? Like that sort of stuff isn't what he reports on. It's more this like very uh, nitty gritty, um, but really well-sourced and deep stuff that helps explain big things that are going on in the sport. So, there's basically this committee that is looking at how they're going to blow up the NCAA basically. And the crux of it is that a lot of things are not necessarily going to be abolished, but they are going to be reverted back to the conferences to make the, the governing policy for it, which will then in turn probably abolish a lot of things. Here are some of the things that are on the list of, of transformations, eliminating scholarship caps on non-revenue sports. So by and large, this is SEC schools that make money in baseball don't think they should be governed by the same scholarship policy as cold weather northern schools that don't. So they want to be able to give scholarships to all their baseball players. So there's I mean, there's all these equivalency sports. I don't know. And this is one of those things you guys don't have to know about this stuff. But the bottom line is, save for a few well, the equivalency sports are actually the female sports that are full scholarship right to to match up for the football stuff there's a lot of sports where where you don't have the full number of scholarships for people on the team i think that there's you can have 35 baseball players in a roster and there's 11.7 scholarships yes for the baseball players and that's the rule yes if if you were to go just do a survey of, of ohio state's baseball team you'd have a lot of guys on there they're like yeah i get like an eighth of a scholarship yeah or or, or a third of a scholarship or whatever. Like it's, 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 it's carved up pretty good. Uh, and then that, that's not to say there aren't full scholarships in baseball, but you better know who you're giving that to. Yeah. Uh, they do go out even for the Northern teams, but man, um, no limits on coaches per team. And this would be across all sports right now. There's a 10 assistant coach limit in football. And then you have all of these guys that are getting hired in as quality control and all that stuff. And those guys can't do on-field instruction. It would basically be opening up on-field instruction to all those guys. This one, I actually don't like. I yeah, think I you, need to, you need to protect schools from themselves on this thing because Alabama is going to hire 47 football coaches. And like, that's stupid. And that's not, I don't care how much money you have. And I don't care that you want to do whatever you want to do. There's a point where that doesn't make sense. And stuff is bloated and there's better ways to spend that money. And I'm okay with the organization that you're part of telling you, I'm not letting you have 47 football coaches. Sorry. Maybe we'll raise it from 10 to 15 or whatever. And 
10 are on field and the other five analysts, they're still called, whatever. I think it's okay to limit coaches. Because here's the thing. The idea of why are we limiting our ability to provide opportunities, and opportunities is an amateur code word for money, to athletes. Why are we doing that? There are clearly Title IX implications, and you have to keep things fair and equal and provide equitable opportunities. But why are we doing that? The scholarship limit on those other sports, I, I there was a baseball coach who I saw come across my timeline who was like, yes, like a college baseball coach. Like, why are we doing this to our baseball players? Like, they're good enough. It, yeah. they're, they're big time sports. Why are we limiting ourselves? So if the thing is, let's take away some of the limits on money we give to athletes, good. The idea of like, let's take away the limits on money that we blow on more adult middle managers because we have so there are 20 schools that have so much money they don't know what to do with it so let's hire another 20 assistant coaches at 400 grand each that's stupid that should be regulated and that should be limited because there's it's still now listen i get it it's the professionalism of amateur sports which is i think is fine but as long as it is still nominally tied to educational institutions here, it's not 1,000% pro sports. It's not. And so if you're a university with that much money, go hire more chemistry professors. I don't need 47 football coaches. So I think that's a stupid regulation to take away. Nobody is saying, oh, man, it's killing us. We don't have enough coaches. Man, yeah, yeah. what are we going to do? We, don't, we, can't, we can't even coach these guys. Our, we have 10 assistant coaches and the head coach. We have 85 players with the walk-ons. It's 105 players. That's like 10 players for every coach. I, I wish it was two players per coach. I wish every. I wish we had 105 players and 105 coaches. So every player got individually coached all day. What do you want? There's a limit. Limit that. Yeah, I was trying to remember um, um, going back to this to, just to kind of emphasize that the, the equivalency sports thing. Dirk Chatelaine, who uh, is a reporter in Omaha, did a piece several years ago about um, how tough it is for the baseball players. And uh, he was specifically doing one on, on baseball. And for, you know, as much as we were like lamenting, well, it's stupid that like Chase Young would have to try to borrow 200 bucks to bring his girlfriend to the Rose Bowl or, or to the playoff or whatever. Like now imagine that's a player who is making a fraction of that with his scholarship. Plus it's a person, you know, that you have to travel a lot more as a baseball player than you do as a college, as a football player, just like, um, and, and keep up with the same academic standards. It's it. So I think some reform there is overdue. Um, let's say I'm going to get to the rest of the list and then make some, some more overarching points here um, expanding direct payments from schools to athletes so right now you can give um, cost of living stipends and you can now give some additional money in the form of uh, it can be tied to sort of like academic performance I assume that you know this would just expand on on those things uh, changing the recruiting calendar to basically just be an open period and a dead period and cutting out all of these sort of weird havesy periods but but the end result of that would be less recruiting time right that yes. like smaller windows in the end i do think there's no reason for like coaches to be on the road at all like you 
the play, the players have to, the high school athletes have to be able to get the information they need to make smart, informed decisions. But it doesn't have to be like this. The recruiting calendar makes no sense. So reforming the recruiting calendar, and as long as it's the same for everybody, it's right. fine. And as long as it's not such a small window that you have athletes who are like, well, I wanted to do this. I couldn't go on this day, and then I couldn't go at all. And so then I didn't get to visit the school that I wanted to visit where I might want to go. Prevent that from happening, but it, it has to be better than it is right now. Yeah, and by the way, those first three things I read off would still potentially fall under the ones that revert to this conferences. This is one that would probably still stay at the NCAA governance level in some way. You'd have to have some equality here because then otherwise you'd be like, you know, the SEC or the Big Ten could just say like, no, we're going to have like open recruiting 365 and and other conferences would have a tighter and it just wouldn't work. So um, and then the transfer similar to that one, the transfer portal only being open for a three or four month period of the year instead of being this constant churn. I don't know if that would be a three month floating thing by sport, because obviously sport seasons oh. end at different times and you couldn't you know what I mean? Like the football portal. And the baseball portal probably need to be different. No, for sure. Right. That it's tied to your season somehow. But again, you can have freedom without it being 365 day a year freedom because people logistics matter. And being able programs being able to say, well, this is our roster because every decision you make, that's the thing that people think about freedom. Everybody wants ultimate freedom to do whatever they want without taking into account the times where what you do with your freedom has an effect on other people. So if what you do affects other people, maybe it's not 24 hour a day, 365 day a year, ultimate freedom, or just go live in the woods if you want that. And then whatever you do won't affect anybody else. But every time somebody transfers or leaves, and then it's like, well, then now that means this person, the transfer in might be taking a spot of another person, might have to transfer out. The transfer out says, oh, well, I didn't know that was, it's okay to have structure to the freedom. So I do think, I mean, there's no rules. Mark Emmert's like, what? Mark Emmert's listening to this, like looking up from his Chick-fil-A nuggets for lunch. He got the uh, 12 pack because he was feeling a little frisky today. He knows that he shouldn't eat as many waffle fries as you get if you do the large size, but He's getting booted out. He treated himself. Mark's looking up from his lunch. I like to listen to podcasts during lunch. What? Emotional eating. Yeah. Emotional eating. He's being booted. He's both sad, but also rewarding himself for what he perceives incorrectly. It's a job well done. So he's like, what? Regulate the portal? I didn't know you could make rules as the president of the NCAA. It's like, yeah, no, you're allowed to make rules. So, I mean, this is, there's a way to give players the freedom they need while creating a more reasonable atmosphere where everybody can function. But, but I think you're getting at the crux of the issue here, which is, and, and by the way, they also Dellinger's reporting said things like the infractions process, automatic qualifiers for national tournaments, revenue distributions, like those would also potentially all also be up for some structural changes. But the whole point of this is the NCAA president can't really unilaterally implement some of these things. And that's why I think they're looking at, at sending it to the conferences and letting the conferences make decisions on, on some of these things and take over the governance of them. I don't know if that works. I don't know because on the one hand, and we always like to look at these things through the lens of, is it good for Ohio state or, or what would it mean for Ohio state? What would it mean for the big 10? And the big 10 has the money 
to implement kind of whatever it wants and to be a very like athlete friendly conference. But will it have the will to do that or will it stubbornly take a less progressive stance because it doesn't want to lose control because that has been uh, there's just been a hesitation across the board for so long to to implement these reforms and the the people within the Big Ten, you know, Gene Smith served on the the NIL committee that the NCAA put together a couple of years ago, or or the I don't remember, I don't think it was called the NIL committee, but he had a a a, a committee chairmanship on uh, or co-chairmanship. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Can you articulate better than I am? It's fine. People know what you're talking about. It's a group. Uh, and again, it was one that kind of came back and and another example of where I didn't feel like there was ever a solution that was proposed. It was more just like, a well, here's here's what we need to be wary of when this change comes. Um, like, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical that uh, the individual conferences would would be um, or maybe even the Big Ten in, in particular would be progressive enough to take advantage of this. Well, so the issue is, it's not, to me, it's not really a conference thing. It's a resources thing. So conferences are like-minded typically in the approach. So you can say Ohio State and Purdue and Rutgers and Nebraska and Iowa all think generally the same kind of thing about how athletics fits into college life. And Alabama and Kentucky and Tennessee and Texas A&M and other schools all think roughly the same way. But when it comes to implementing it, Ohio State and Purdue are in the same conference, but they're not on the same level. And Alabama and Vanderbilt are on the same conference, but they're not on the same level. Alabama, when it comes to implementing it, Alabama and Ohio State have much more in common with each other than Alabama and Kentucky have in common or than Ohio State and Indiana have in common. So there's the like-minded thinking, but then there's the, hey, let us spend our money the way we want to spend it. And if you're saying it's a money issue, we're going to let you spend the money the way you want to spend it. We're going to take some of the regulation off how you pay players, how you pay staff, those kind of things. I don't think that's a conference decision. Like, I don't think that that's like, oh, the SEC is all going to think the same way about that, or the Big Ten's all going to think the same way, or the Big 12 is all going to think the same way. Because USC is going to be like, cool, and Oregon State is going to be like, what? And the same thing's So that's why I think, again, it's to me, a lot of this stuff is if they're saying, well, we're going to let the conferences have more power, it's much more about top 30 than it is this group of 14 people who are geographically near each other. So I don't, I'll be, see, I'll be curious to see if they give the freedom to smaller groups. Everybody wants smaller regulation. You don't want, if you're Alabama, you don't want somebody in Oregon telling you how to spend your money because you're in a different part of the country. But you also don't want UAB, which is in your same state, telling you how to spend your money because they have 150 of the resources you do. But I do think in the end, it's more of a resources issue than a conference issue. So to give it to the conferences, I don't, does that sound like, oh, we'll let the conferences decide. Right. Is that, does that mean everything's going to be great then? That solves it? Right. I think, I think you're getting at what I was trying to say, which is it, it seems like it may unfold as another version of where Ohio State uses less power than it has. And still, it is still maybe confined within the structure of the Big Ten. 
Right. Which is which is the case now. But. The more it's the case for everybody now. So everybody's constrained in some way. But if you let conferences decide and let's say the SEC is like, go do anything you want, spend money however you want to on any athlete and any staff member. And the Big Ten doesn't do that. But then Ohio State has to try to go compete nationally against SEC schools. And no, not everybody else in the Big Ten is not worried about that the same way. I think it amplifies the currently existing thing, which is Ohio State has more power than it uses. But if the Big Ten constrains and the SEC doesn't anymore, how long is that tenable for Ohio State? Because it's fine now, but you're maybe increasing the gap. So um, I don't I don't think it's a conference solution in the end, which a lot of yeah. people, which everyone's been saying. It's a tier solution, which is why everybody in for five years has been theorizing about the top 30 break off and do their own thing. And you have a super conference that is one super conference that is from coast to coast, from Mexico to Canada. And it's just the big schools. And in the end, especially because Ohio State, which is why it's fun to talk about this kind of stuff through the Ohio State lens, is because Ohio State is a gigantic SEC-like athletic department within a conference that doesn't want to act like the SEC. And that creates tension. And how Ohio State specifically works that out is about as interesting as it gets in conversations like this. And Gene Smith has been one of the people who has most argued that we need federal regulation as it applies to NIL. And I know that some people, and maybe even myself at times, that has looked like a a continued like abdication of this by NCA authority figures. Um, you know, looking somebody come in from outside and fix this problem. But if you start talking about this splintering to down to the conferences having more power governing each of these things, that's where something like NIL at the federal level maybe is more necessary. And it gets, starts to give them some guidelines to work with. And you already have that for something like Title IX. Like if you, if you were to dissipate all this power to the conferences, they would still be governed by Title IX as far as like how you have opportunities for equal opportunities for males and female athletes. Would they need something like that to help kind of give them guidelines as it gets to, as it pertains to NIL? Because people are, are starting to lose their mind a little bit about where this NIL stuff is headed. No, the NIL stuff, they have to get a handle on this to some degree uh, as well. That would not limit the ability of athletes to make money. But again, as we've talked about before on this podcast, no sport where you are attempting to create some kind of equal playing field in the name of competition, no sport like that is completely capitalistic. Anybody can do whatever they want at any time and can change teams whenever they want. and can get any amount of money they want. That is not how any sport functions. It's not. So if you are arguing against that, argue against every sport that exists, because even in major league baseball, there's no salary cap. There's a limit on what you can earn when you come in as a young player, there are limits. So when we act like, well, every 19 year old has to have complete freedom for everything. It's like, okay, Good luck with playing with with blowing up your competitive balance, and let's not act like competitive that balance is not some kind of worthy goal 
for big time sports competition. It is. I do yeah, think and- in the end, most of this stuff, though, just comes down to whether you want federal regulation, whether it's from the NCAA or Congress and the federal government, or whether you want conference regulation or freedom for the schools. It's no different than politics. Do you want federal regulation or do you want state regulation? This goes back to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. It's no different. Do you want local control or national control? Now, the issue is if you want local control here, you then go out and play for national championships. You don't only play for local championships. So if you're going to have a bunch of people playing by very different sets of rules because people are hell-bent on local control, it's going to skew when you come together because the playing field's not going to be level. So to me, at some point, how can you have no national regulation when you have national championships? There's no overarching rules. Everything's at the conference level. That's crazy to me. How can that be? Then we don't have national champions anymore. Alabama can be the champion of Alabama. It's Alabama, Auburn, UAB, and Alabama State. There's a four-team football tournament every year, and Alabama gets to raise the Alabama trophy. Great. But if we want to do more than that, you have to give in to some kind of federal coast-to-coast regulation on some level. And if that means we do away with geographic identity at the highest level, and we agree to constraints based on money, So Alabama is constrained to some degree, but barely because USC and Texas and Ohio state and Florida state and Clemson can all keep up. So they have minimal regulation on the 30 richest athletic programs and go. Then I think that's where you have to wind up because if it's about conferences and States, the, this, the, the local areas with the least regulation are just going to win every year. And at some point, That's not that fun. And then people would say, you mean like now? How the SEC wins everything in football? And I would say, yeah, I know, like now, but worse. But even more. So I just, I I don't know why. um, Like they have a body. They have a national body. It's just so ineffective. People are like, eh, let's just not have that anymore. And I don't know that that's actually the solution. I want to make one real quick point before we go to break. You make a good point about how the there isn't a free-for-all in the pro sports. All those things, even when there's freedom, it's very structured. But as we said ad nauseum, what's the main difference between the two levels? All those things at the pro level are collectively bargained. All those things, the, the players have a representative body. They get to be involved with how the structure of those things are, are set up. And that doesn't exist at the college level. So that's and that's one of the reforms I did not see mentioned in this. They did. There was a Dellinger did say that they had broached the topic of uh, athletes as employees, but had not come up with a proposal for that yet. But until uh, that relationship also still needs to be hashed out. This is still a lot of things that are being dictated to the the human beings who populate the thing that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. In a, world, a in, a, in a world where, well, yeah, there's no reason to get anymore. I was going to talk about Starbucks unions, but nobody wants to hear that on Buckeye Talk. <laughs> but I mean, like, that's right. So um, it's it's just the reality. It's clunky as all heck. And and we don't I don't love talking about it. It does make my head explode a little bit. And I do think the idea of 
this the thing you briefly mentioned about the basketball player who has an NIL agent who negotiated other good NIL deals for other players at his school. And now that agent is saying, hey, these other players have better deals than this guy. I negotiated those. You better give this guy stuff or he's leaving. Like, I don't love that. Players should be able to make outside money, but that's not how it works. Necessar- I mean, like you can sit out, right? But that's not how it works. You can't but- just leave. In sports, you sign contracts. You can't just threaten to leave. Now, James Harden, I get it. And players do, and they force their way out. But like, you can't regulate that some way that there's some kind of the money's tied to a commitment on some level. And, and the reason that it's not is because the NCAA is so jacked up right now. But I don't know that that's – is that where everybody thinks we should be? Players should be allowed to make outside money. And now we're at the point where if you don't give me a good, as good of an NIL deal as my teammate, I'm going to transfer – or th- I'm going to threaten, even if you just transfer, just transfer, but to threaten to transfer, eek. And that's not, that's just about competitive balance in any sport in the way of function. I don't think that's, that's not the long-term functionality that people want for the sport. I don't think. And this is where I think it's going to be, which, which side do coaches take the, if you're, uh, if you're Larinaga down at Miami, do you just call his bluff and let him leave? And or do you give in or allow your boosters to give in, I guess, in this case, because it's not money that's coming directly from you. And then are you just feeding the worst version of this? It's um, I understand they are in a bad problem, but as I a bad situation. But as I said last week, the coaches helped create this like there wasn't enough of they, they had an incredibly influential voice that they did not use to help come up with a better system than this. It's one of the reasons why we're here. I'm not necessarily blaming them in totality because the, because I think there was also um, misguided trust placed in the NCA to come up with a better framework than this, but uh, they didn't help themselves. And now they're uh, the chickens are coming home to roost. Is that, the, is that the phrase? I think that's what I mean. But, but is that, but is your attitude like, Oh, well, you did this to yourself. Sorry, sport exploding. Well, I think the problem is I understand like what's the solution. Yeah, I think the NCAA is it, – it comes down to like I – mean, not to use a technical term, but I think it comes down to legal stuff at some point, right? But, <laughs> like it's but, like but, what, but what's your solution? What's your Nathan Bear? What should they do? Is this just the way it is? I think uh, if, if I were doing it, I guess I would be fine with having – making the uh, the – making things more enforceably like a commitment that's more enforceable, but I don't know where that sits legally. If the, if they are actually an amateur, if they are actually, if the, if the income is coming from somewhere else, that's the problem you have. You want to be able to tie the compensation of a player to the school. And I know they're getting scholarships, but you want to be able to tie this, the the totality of their um, commitment to the school but the school is only responsible for some or, or none of the compensation. Mm-hmm. And those two things colliding right now is what's causing the problem. There's no sport that has zero regulation on how players get to the teams. Initially, all pro sports have a draft. There's no draft in college sports. It's all recruiting. You pick and decide. So those athletes actually have more freedom than they're going to have later. 
You can, you can decide to go wherever you want to go. And now also you have ultimate freedom to leave at any point and go wherever you want to go a second time, which no pro athlete has. They earn that right. So that is two levels of unfettered freedom for the athlete. And now you're going to tell a school, I'm going to transfer if I don't get more NIL money. Like, again, you have to probably figure it out with an employment agreement. And that's right. where this goes. But how can this be the thing? How can this be? This cannot be it. What's happening right now is the transition from treating college sports and college athletes as they are, not as they wish they were. I think is, is what we're really talking about here. Like this is this the, the, the conditions have already existed here as far as a everything we've been talking about for the past 10 years as it relates to this this concept. And now it's just a matter of a very messy transition towards accepting that and actually then basing the laws around that as opposed to what we wish was still in play from 40 years ago. And what they could really use in a town like this is a freaking leader. And they don't yes. have one. Back, we brought it all back around to the front of the conversation. We are not going to talk about Starbucks unions. We are going to talk about food and some other nonsense. We come back from break here on Buckeye Talk. I'm going to go first on Watcha Watcha Much Eaten because I, I'm still deciding what I want to say about my Watcha Watcha. But my Watcha Eaten is once in a while you encounter a condiment that. <laughs> This sounded like the opening line of an Oscar-winning documentary. Once in a while, you encounter a condiment. And I have encountered such a condiment. There is a uh, Brazilian restaurant. Is it Brazilian? I think it's a tapas, South American restaurant here in Columbus called Arapazo. There's, there used to be one in Gahanna also. I don't know if you would have been more familiar with that one. Um, some of our listeners probably were, but I think that location actually recently closed. So they only have the one on High Street now, South High Street. They are known for a lot of things. They're known for their empanadas, which are fantastic. Love empanadas. Oh, I don't know if we've ever brought up empanadas in the um, meat stuffed dough conversation, but they're, they're very high on my list. I went to a, a wedding one time. You know, sometimes um, at the wedding, you have like the food that gets brought in late, like the late night food mm. like after all the dancing and stuff and one of them i went to just had like towers of empanadas and it was amazing and i ate way too many of them um there's a great there's a restaurant in new york city that i came across called empanada mama that is there oh i took you that oh i made you go to empanada mama it's like yeah i forgot that there's like 50 different kinds of empanadas it's, it's one of my favorite restaurants awesome it was it was yeah. really good uh if you go to arapazo they have their own that they make cilantro sauce. And there's like a mild version and a spicy version. We always get the spicy version. You can buy it by the bottle and bring it home. So we like to make sure we go to Arapazo every couple months because we have to get a new bottle of cilantro sauce and bring it home and you can put it on everything. We made fish tacos earlier this week that we put it on. Uh, I made like uh, uh, eggs and fried potatoes for breakfast the other day. You put them on the potatoes. It's like, it's, it's a, very versatile condiment and it's delicious. And if you like spicy food, especially get the spicy version, it's not like killer blow your mouth out spicy, but it's got enough of a kick to it that uh, it's just a, a, a fun dining experience. So that's my recommendation. The cilantro sauce from Arapazo. 
What's cilantro taste like? Cilantro is an herb. It's like if you get if you get authentic tacos, if you go to a taqueria, yeah. you're getting just onions and cilantro on a yeah. taco. Is cilantro the thing that some people think tastes like soap? Yes. I, I, Not- I weep for those people because cilantro is maybe my favorite herb, my favorite like leafy thing to add to things isn't that weird aren't there a couple things about the human condition where it feels like god was just having a little fun and it's like i'm gonna have a thing where 95 percent of the people think this thing tastes good and five percent of the people think it tastes like soap it's like what are you doing it's like he's just Mm -hmm. like it's fine it's no big it's not it's not hurting anybody but i just wanted to see if i could do it it's like yep you did it um well that makes me want to get cilantro sauce because i don't think it tastes like soap so that's good it's really um Mine is going to be about Reese's peanut butter eggs because we just got done with Easter. And I grew up in the town next to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Reese's is a Hershey company, the Reese's factory. I three miles from my house, drove past it a gazillion times in my lifetime. Very deep connection to Reese's. And there was a time. So there's the Reese's cup and then there's the Reese's egg. And I am very interested in the peanut butter to chocolate ratio of any Reese's product. And over time, they have really started changing a lot of stuff around. But one of the main things that changes is what is the peanut butter to chocolate ratio? Because a a regular cup, it is much more chocolate to peanut butter than the egg. The Reese's egg, which was for an Easter egg, is just much more peanut butter. And that's my ratio. So I always look, I want more peanut butter. I'm actually not a gigantic chocolate guy. I'm a huge peanut butter guy. So I want more like a four to one peanut butter to chocolate ratio. And I feel like a regular Reese's cup is more like a two to one peanut butter to chocolate ratio. So I love the eggs. And there was this time where like, that was my, it was like Easter would come around. It's like, it's Reese's eggs. It's more peanut butter. And then they figured it out. Now there's Reese's hearts at Halloween. Then you go into the eggs or no, not Reese's hearts at Valentine's. Then yes. you go into the eggs. Then there are Reese's pumpkins at Halloween. And then there are Reese's trees at Christmas. So they figured out that people want that different ratio of peanut butter to chocolate year round. And they just made up an excuse for the most seasonal shape they could figure out to say, that's the shape we'll make, but it's about the ratio. And I do think, Nathan, I do think some people like, they have smaller Reese's, which the, then the ratio becomes almost like one-to-one chocolate to peanut butter, which I don't like that. That's too much chocolate. And I obsess. And then they have like the, now they have just bigger cups year round where again, it's a bigger peanut butter ratio. The, I love Reese's products, but the ratio is the whole thing. And I just, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And that's how I choose my Reese's products. What fits my ratio do you think about peanut butter to chocolate ratio in the same way? And what do you have a preferred ratio for those products? So uh, as before I was um, bemoaning those who think that cilantro tastes like soap, my wife has a nut allergy, Mm. peanuts and tree nuts. And which means I might as well have one because it's, it's hard to have, peanut butter that's like still on your face or hands or like wrappers laying around. She doesn't, she's not one of those people that like, if, if you smell it from, if, if it happens like 
three floors away, their face still blows up or whatever. But it, it's obviously bad if she ingests it. So I really I love chocolate and peanut butter, and I like peanut butter just as, on its own. But I rarely I it's almost like a um. If I'm away from home by myself, if I'm on a road trip, I can indulge in like something peanut butter related. But before all this, um, one of my favorite uh, candy experiences is the Reese's dark chocolate cups mm. and the ones that just come individually, mm-hmm. which might as well. There might as well just be one huge one because I'm just going to eat like yeah. 20 of the little ones. Um, that's uh, about as good as it gets. If people have never tried that, I highly recommend it. But that's a much more chocolate ratio. There's because the it smaller is. you get, the yeah. more chocolate there is. And yeah, you enjoy would, that ratio. I'm probably more of a chocolate over peanut butter ratio than you are. Okay. Yeah. And I love that. It's not actually peanut butter. It's that fake flaky, right. whatever fake substance of peanut butter robot. I, it's like astronaut peanut butter. I love it. I love fake peanut butter. Uh, that so I don't even know what that substance is. Delicious. I'm envisioning you now, though, up at the altar, you and your wife getting married, and the minister is about to start the vows, and she leans in, in, in and says, uh, by the way, I have a nut allergy. And you're like, your life is like flashing before your eyes. You're like realizing I'm about to give up peanut butter for the rest of my life. You didn't have a moment where you were like, eh. Do I love her as much as I need to to give up peanut butter? What was that like for you? You know, it's not that much of a workaround, really. I mean, we still make a ton of ice cream together. Um, so it's not like I'm not getting all those same kind of treats. And we still, you know, we can make other desserts. The things that are tricky are like, it re- because if you go look at like any candy you buy at a store, a lot of them say made in a facility that. Mm. Now, if it's, if it's made in a facility that also had peanuts and tree nuts, which you kind of have to do for liability, that's not a problem. If it says it's made on the same machinery, that's the problem. Okay. But there are also some companies that have figured out, like if you go buy just a regular Hershey bar, those are made in a facility that don't come in contact with nuts and they're not even in the facility. They're made in like a separate facility. So like they've figured out there's some other candy companies like uh, Charleston Chews are fine. And I think Junior Mints are fine. Milk Duds may even be fine. Like some companies have figured out to make certain things off of the, the nut machines. Um, the other thing that trips us up sometimes is Chinese food. Like I love mm. like just like Chinese takeout and stuff, but obviously there's peanuts around that all the time. Um, or like things like donuts, you kind of have to go to maybe a nut-free bakery to get things like that. Mm. But it's really not a huge, I, I will take a nut allergy over um, with, with my spouse over like a, maybe like a dairy allergy seems like it would be mm. a much bigger problem or people that can't have uh, gluten because of celiac or whatever. And you have to only do gluten-free breads and pizza crusts yeah. and all that stuff. Like that just, that seems like way more hassle than what we go through. Every time you talk about you and your wife making ice cream at your house, the picture in my head, and I, I always rail against Seinfeld references because they're 40 years old, is when uh, Kramer and Newman are making the sausage in Jerry's apartment and they're cranking the sausage scene and going, dun, 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 dun. and like they're, I, I just yeah. picture that's how you, I, you're on the crank and your wife and you're dancing in your kitchen making ice cream. Is that pretty close to it? No, uh, to be fair of late, it's actually been more her. Like it's one of her big hobbies to make. Like right now we have a uh, Oreo cheesecake ice cream in our freezer. That is spectacular. Interesting. All her creation. All right. What you watching? So I'm watching uh, high school musicals. So my daughters were in uh, footloose over the weekend 
And I just want to give a shout out to, I'm old. When I was in high school, and I think I've realized since then that maybe my high school just wasn't into that very much. But like the idea when I was in high school, like, hey, you do a musical. I was like, that would have never even crossed my mind. It's like, how do people do that? That doesn't seem like something that high school students could do. And at least in my town, there are three high schools and they all put on multiple musicals a year. And they always have signs up around town. If there is a high school musical in your community, maybe you don't have kids. Maybe your kids are not of age. Maybe your kids are all are moved out of the house. But when you see the sign on the corner and it's like, ah, there's a high school musical this weekend, go to one because they are very good. It amazes me what 17 and 18 year olds can do. And as long, listen, there's some boring musicals, but we they did Footloose and it's a very entertaining musical. And to watch the production numbers and all these things, it kind of blows my mind. I, I don't know. I don't know how like I would have done something like that in high school. I don't know that I, I would have liked to try. I wish my high school did it. So I would just like go watch one of those. If you have a random Friday night or a random Saturday afternoon, it's musical season. A lot of schools are probably already done with them. Some still are doing them. If you've never seen one, just go see one. I took my kids when they were little, probably 10 years ago to one. We went and saw Legally Blonde at the high school that they're at now. And it was awesome. We went and saw Snoopy uh peanuts the musical one time and then like the kids come out at the end of my kids met the the kids who were in peanuts the musical it was like they're meeting broadway stars they were like oh my gosh how good you were so it's just a really fun uh community experience and if you think to yourself eh, i don't know high school production is like if they're putting the time into it it's probably going to be pretty good and worth your time so uh get off your couch give up netflix for a night and go see a high school musical I went to a high school out in the middle of a bean field, so we didn't really have, by the time I got to high school, the auditorium that used to exist there had been like converted into a, some other thing. We didn't really have um, a theater production situation. They, they had one room they kind of repurposed into that. So I did some plays in like elementary school. There was like a gifted program thing where I did some plays. I was the wizard in the Wizard of Oz once. That's, that tracks. And I was, um, I, there was some kind of, there was something we did about like John Henry and I was like the narrator and I had to blow on this train whistle. I don't remember uh, specifics of that one, but before that, when I was younger, I remember going to that same school when the auditorium was still there because I had a cousin who was in, they were doing a production of you're a good man, Charlie Brown, mm. which I don't remember how much that actually correlates to mm -hmm. the actual Charlie Brown uh, cartoon. But anyway, I remember, I can like still remember like, sort of like this the way that that felt and seemed and uh, i agree with you like i've walked by like other high schools around here and you'll see like they're advertising their plays and i've said to my wife like oh we should like go to those sometime and we just haven't so yeah maybe something maybe it could be the first time we uh dump the kid off with the babysitter will be to go to a babies love high school plays I just <laughs> babies love them uh my watch and watching real quick we've been uh we always have like something that we watch as we're falling asleep at night and lately it's been 30 rock it's usually just like a, a recent comedy. And I was reminded uh, as we went back through it, we just had the episode recently. It's my favorite joke in television history. And for people who haven't seen 30 Rock, there's a lot of things that are kind of like a family guy uh, vibe where like they'll say something and it'll immediately cut to like a hmm. past scene. And uh, the main character that uh, Tina Fey plays and then uh, Jane Krasinski is like the, the ditzy blonde star of this TV show that, that Tina Fey 
runs and they were friends together in Chicago. And one of them makes a reference to like that time we did improv in Chicago and it cuts to this scene of them both sitting down a chair and the, the prompter says, uh, sling blade and Oprah go on a date. And Tina Fey sits down and says, man, I sure do love them French fried potatoes. And Jane Krasinski says, no, you don't Oprah. It's my favorite joke in television history. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of them on 30 Rock, though. It moves really fast. And if you've never watched 30 Rock, I recommend it. Because it's, it's, it's not a show that you can skip around. You can fall asleep in the middle and come back three episodes later. And the, the timeline doesn't really matter. It's, it's fun. It bounces around. Um, a lot of good jabs. Fun show. I like 30 Rock. To me, it's the starkest example. I thought the pilot of 30 Rock was abysmal. And I was excited for it. You like Tina Fey from Saturday Night Live. And I watched and I was like, this is awful. And then they figured it out by episode two. But it's like, it's one of the craziest things. I'm like, man, if they, I, I, their pilot was bad enough that I thought the executive been like, well, you tried it, Tina Fey. Didn't yeah. work. We're done. And then they got it together after that. I think there's a lot of shows like that. I think the first season of Parks and Rec is pretty flat for me. And then they got it going. I think there's a lot of shows like that, that it takes like, a little bit of time and i think 30 rock was probably you had to like get the concept of it settled and then let the zaniness all play around it and so i could see that but uh i i I think we're we're several seasons into the rewatch here and it's it's pretty fun all right so this is actually probably it for me this is probably like the actual last thing we're recording this on a friday afternoon no later than saturday night we're going into the hospital to to bring this kid into the world so i'll see you all in a couple of months before Doug Lee Maurice, I'm Nathan Baird, and that was Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm.